Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow Yeah, that's what we uh, that's what we try to do here at the catch. We try to make it make it better, make life better for people, make uh, make people think about life more, what it's for, what it's all about, what are we here for? Um, who is God? Is there a God? What is He here for to do? Do we believe Him? Why do we? All those good things are all related to to hopefully making the world a better place. Now that's you know we watch the world get worse and worse, it seems. So we feel like we're we're going uphill. Um, but you know it's 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 one on one. It's each one of us uh, doing what we can, and more than anything. As we've learned here, it's each one of us being available to God, available to the Holy Spirit to work through us. Because uh, we're not going to we're not going to do anything on our, our own, but only as God works in and through our lives. We're going to find out some about that uh, in a very unique profession tonight uh, from our guest. I am very excited about this evening and the discussion we're going to have, because we are talking, I have to tell you, this this will be the most pleasant interview we will ever have, only because we are talking to our guest is a, a voiceover um, professional. He does books, narrations, stories, ads, commercials, um, all of that stuff. Why? Because he just got a fantastic voice, so um, you're gonna you're just gonna enjoy hearing him talk. Um, but he's got some wonderful things to say on top of that. So I want you to welcome, uh, <laughs> as he says on his website, the second nicest guy in voiceover, our good friend Bob Sauer. Welcome, Bob, to Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, John. It's a delight to be here with you. Now, uh, you've answered this, I'm sure, many times, but you're going to have to answer it again. Obviously, uh, if you're the second, you know, who, who's, the, who's the nicest guy <laughs> in voiceover, or why are you the second nicest? You've got to give us some little insight sure. on that. Uh, just a little <laughs> bit of background on that, and I guess the initial response needs to be you have to ask yourself, would the nicest guy in voiceover claim to be the nicest? And the answer to that question gives a lot of the reason why I only claim to be the second nicest. The other part of the equation, of course, is that like every other occupant of this planet, I am a fallen, sinful human being, and I know that I cannot be perfect on my own. 
And therefore, I don't ever want to claim to have some kind of position mm-hmm. that's so exalted that I can't live up to it. So <laughs> I only claim to be the second nicest guy in voiceover, which gives me a little wiggle room to be occasionally less than nice <laughs> to uh, to people. Uh, though I, of course, try to be nice all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. I love that answer. Thank you. Um, Bob, sure. we've known each other for a long time. And, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you've made a living off your voice, which is pretty phenomenal. And now you're doing, you know, narrations, you're reading book, audio books. Uh, and I think you're still doing commercials. We're going to talk about some of that later, mm-hmm. but I happen to know that's not where you started. So, um, tell us how you started and, and, and how, what were the steps? How, how did that lead to where you are now? Sure. Well, I actually, um, when I was in college, I studied to be a musician, a singer. Uh, my intention was to be an opera singer, actually. And my, um, wow. I went I went to uh, Trinity, um, it's now called Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. in, um, yeah. in the early 70s. And uh, I'm sure you've sung there at least a few times, John. In fact, I think I remember seeing you once yes. there in concert, at least. But anyway, I, I went to school there, and my senior year, uh, my main vocal coach was on a sabbatical that year, and so I had a, a different coach who I also really liked. Uh, she was excellent. And um, she knew one of the principal people at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And so one day I arrived at um, my next private lesson, and she said, I have great news for you. And I said, what's that? She said, the guy's name was Boris Goldovsky, which means nothing to probably almost everybody who's listening to us today. But anyway, this guy, Boris, was at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and he was coming to Chicago to do a master class. And she had studied with him years before, had stayed in touch, and arranged with him to do an audition for me with him. Now, what I learned wow. over the course of the next week was that no matter how much he liked me, I was not going straight to the Metropolitan in New York. I was going to have to live in Europe for probably 20 years, learn the repertoire, learn all the different operas that my voice would be suitable for and the various roles. And if I built enough of a reputation, then I could come back to the States after about 20 years and make a living as an opera singer. But right away, there was no way. There weren't enough opera houses in the United States to do that. Now, I'd gotten married while I was in college, and so the idea of asking my wife to leave behind everybody she knew and me leaving behind everybody I knew and go live in Europe for on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for 20 years had no appeal. So I told my, um, I told my teacher the next week when I saw her, I said, cancel the audition. I don't want to know. Because if I did the audition even if I intended to say thank you but no thank you, then I would be faced with this dilemma. If he did really like me, what was I going to do? Now I would really face the decision. I would rather decide in advance and not do it. So that's what we did. Now, I'm at the end of my college years, and I've studied music for all this time. Well, that led to a job working in the record business as a manager of a record store. 
Eventually, I became, because of my love for classical music, well-known in the Chicago area and record stores as being something of an aficionado of classical music. I was hired by the biggest record store in Chicago to do uh, their classical department to manage it. That led to me getting a job in real estate from a guy who was the sales manager and vice president of sales for a builder who was a huge classical music fan. And I was working as a real estate agent or as a salesman for this uh, builder when I sold a house to a guy who worked in radio. Now, he (laughs) says to me the first time he meets me, you have a really nice voice. Have you ever worked in radio? And I said, how do you get a job in radio? And he said, well, I'm looking for somebody part-time. Why don't you come over? So he finally convinced me to do that. I auditioned. He calls me up one day in the afternoon. It's a Friday. And he says, well, Bob, we had seven people audition for this job. Five of them had radio experience. I was sure he was going to say, and I had to pick one of them because I needed somebody with experience. But instead what Mm -hmm. he said was, you were the best. I want you. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no. Can you come in on Monday and start training? And I said, okay. Well, two hours later, my vice president, my boss, comes in, sits down in my office. It's 1979. He says, Bob, there's a recession on. Uh, The president of the company's just been fired. I've been demoted to your position, and I'm sorry, but we have to let you go. So that was how God made it abundantly clear I was getting out of real estate and into radio. Mm -hmm. Three months later, I was working for the station full-time. A couple of years after that, I was hired by a state. That was a suburban station. Then I was hired by a station in the city. And then subsequently, uh, the general manager of the local Christian music station got to know me. He was my next door neighbor. He moved into the neighborhood, got to know me as a neighbor and eventually offered me a job. And you and I met not very long after that back in the days when I was doing a Christian music show that was syndicated nationally, uh, which was in the um, mid-'80s, I guess, was when we first met. So that's 30 years ago now. Wow. And, uh, yeah, at least 30, maybe maybe slightly more than that. And um, anyway, so that I worked in radio. I worked for radio stations, and then I got a job with a network, and then I got another job with another network, which led to a move to Virginia. And um, all of this time, while I was working in radio, I had been given some opportunities to do commercials and other kinds of narration work as uh, an independent voiceover person. And then when I was in Virginia, it really started to explode And that led eventually to moving to Pittsburgh, where I worked as a program director of a radio station, but where my voiceover work really began to explode, just off the Mm -hmm. charts. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I began to think seriously about maybe I should just do voiceovers and quit this radio job. But then I was given an opportunity to come to work for the Billy Graham Association, And I worked for them for about eight years, uh, helping to run their radio department and doing a lot of voiceovers for both TV and radio for them. Hmm. But at the same time, my voiceover business continued to grow and grow. Hmm. And so eventually got to the point where I was so busy working both for Billy Graham and traveling every couple of weeks and so forth. It just got to be too much. And so eventually I resigned from that position and just have been, that was in um, 
early mid 2009 and so I've been just doing voiceovers uh since 2009. Wow. And uh of of those uh you've done you you've done a lot of commercials. Uh what would yes. we would we recognize any of those? What are some commercials I we might we might remember? Well, if if somebody lives in Pennsylvania, they will have heard me on some Pennsylvania lottery commercials, but mm-hmm. those only run in the state of Pennsylvania. There aren't many, very many commercials I've done that have been um, aired National. nationally. Mm-hmm. I've done some documentaries on PBS um, for um, uh, a couple of um, a couple of different uh, documentary producers have used me for narrations on PBS. So my voice has been on. On there, I've also done um, television programming for the Military Channel. There's still a series that runs occasionally on there about sniper warfare. I'm the narrator of that, and um, and then I do quite a few audiobooks. In fact, I've I've done three different right. biographies of Billy Graham <laughs> over the years, hmm. and I've also narrated the Bible twice: uh, once for Thomas Nelson in the New King James Version, and once for Zondervan in the NIV. Um, in fact, that New King James Version was the very first audiobook I did in 2006. So that was really jumping into the deep end of the audiobook pool. Wow. Because uh, narrat- wow. narrating the whole Bible does take... It took us 11 the months to get it Bible. done. Yes, sir. My goodness. That was... Wow. That's amazing. Anyway, so... That, but that's a little bit of the stuff that I've done and where somebody might have heard my voice. What was that experience like, actually? Uh you know, re- reading the Bible. Yes, okay. in yeah, fact... Share in, a little bit of that with us. Sure. In 2006, when I first was hired to do that uh, project for Thomas Nelson, they decided to do it using uh, special digital phone lines called ISDN. And so I did it from my studio in North Carolina, where I was living at the time, and the studio was in Nashville, Tennessee, where Thomas Nelson's headquartered. And they had a director that was assigned to me, and they had um, plenty of resources for all the various obscure pronunciations all the way through the Bible. And, um, you know, we we got together every afternoon and recorded the next segment of whatever it was. It took uh, several months for the Old Testament, and then it took about a month for the New Testament. Then we had uh, several weeks off while they were doing the editing, and then there was another couple, three months for doing all the corrections, because obviously they wanted it to be word perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was uh, it was actually the first time that I read the Bible from cover to cover, personally. I had read lots of the Bible, of course, over the years, having grown up as a Christian, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd never, I never, I, I had always gotten bogged down in the, you know, Deuteronomy and Leviticus yeah. uh, when I was trying yeah. to read the Bible from from Genesis to Revelation. So I never made it until I did that wow. recording session. And what was that? What was that like for you personally? Uh, was, was well, that, I'll tell you. Was that meaningful <clears throat> aside from just the work? It was extraordinarily meaningful because, in part, it gave me a sense, over the course of 11 months, it gave me a sense of the whole sweep of the scriptures in a way that you can't get by just reading bits of it here, there, and so forth. You see the story unfold and the way God reveals his will to people 
you know, greater and greater and greater are the revelations until finally Christ appears. And then, of course, he's the fullness of the story. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that was amazing. And then, of course, the history following the Gospels, uh, the history of the Church in the Book of Acts, and then the Epistles after that. And then, you know, it ends with uh, the end of the story, you know. The um, <laughs> Calvin Miller, I believe it was, who's a writer, an extraordinarily ben- uh, yes. brilliant writer and, and a theologian, he once said, you know, when you think about it, it's the really greatest story of all. It begins once upon a time in the beginning God, and it ends, and they all lived happily ever after, even so come, Lord Jesus. I mean, it really is the greatest story of all. And it follows wow. exactly that pattern from, you know, once upon a time to they lived happily ever after. I love that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Bob, you've worked, you know, uh, in you've worked in both the secular world and, and the Christian world and probably still yeah. are. I got your feet in both. Um, yes. I, I'm not sure how I want to approach this, but I, I just would love to have you talk a little bit about um, what that's like moving from one to the other. And uh, are there ever any, any conflicts? And, and uh, I don't know whether you might even want to make some comparisons. <laughs> I'm not sure. sure we want to get into that. I, I, well, you know, I know some, sometimes things aren't what we think they should be, but... Um, well, I'm willing to bet, John, and I don't want to turn this around on you, but I'm just saying I'm willing to bet that in the years that you were a touring musician, you probably were unhappily astonished a few times by the way you were either treated or the way you weren't paid or the way things were jerked around. Yep. And unfortunately, it's true that some people who are in a sort of Christian business, I use air quotes around the word Christian there, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes aren't mm-hmm. all that terribly honorable, and it's, uh, it's sad. But here's, here's the thing that I think is the essence of what you're driving at. Back in the, in the 80s, when I had been working in radio for only a few years, I got a job working for a station that at the time was owned by NBC Radio, uh, by the NBC network, uh, one of their owned and op- pardon me operated stations in Chicago. And um, what was fascinating to me was that I did not actually have to say anything to anybody on the staff about how I was a Christian, and yet people knew. I vividly remember, not very long after I went to work there, I hadn't really had a chance to interact with people long enough or enough to, you know, to even witness or whatever. And this guy comes up to me and he says, hey, would you be willing to pray about something for me? Mm. Now, that's not the sort of thing you just walk up to Joe Average person on the street and say, hey, would you be willing to pray for me? (laughs) So, you know, just, you know, God was opening people's hearts and minds to the message that he wanted to speak through me, even without my having to go out of my way to say it. It's been fascinating Mm -hmm. to me in the last number of years, for example, as I've worked worked for a number of different publishing companies. I don't mean Christian publishing companies. I mean people who publish audiobooks, uh, some of the biggest names in that particular field, 
they're obscure names to the average person on the street, but uh, you know, within the business, they're they're big names. And God has provided the opportunities to do that. And what's fascinating to me <clears throat> is that sometimes the most godly and God-honoring books that I get to narrate are the ones that are coming from these companies that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, Christian publishing or Christian media. And at least some of it, I'm sure, is because I suppose they hear the affinity that's in my voice and the way that I treat the subject and so forth and so on. Um, And some of it, I think, is God working in the background, giving me an opportunity to read stories that are honoring to him and that are going to be in the marketplace, not, you know, not inside of some little uh, sort of sandbox of a Christian bookstore, but it's, it's going to be in the, in the general marketplace. It's going to be on audible.com. It's going to be in the audiobook sections at, uh, you know, at Barnes and Noble and in amazon.com and so forth. It's going to, in other words, it's going to be out there in the general marketplace, which is exactly where Christ, I think, calls us to be. He doesn't want us to go. I, I remember Becky Pippert wrote a book many years ago. It was Out of the Salt Shaker. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about that image of, you know, mm-hmm. Christ calls us to be salt in the world. And it is. it doesn't mean that we stay in the salt shaker. It means we have to get out of the salt shaker and into the world in order to do that. And... It doesn't yeah. require us to be constantly dreaming up inventive ways to tell people about Jesus mm-hmm. because God's going to provide us with the doorways and the opportunities to share that message with people in all kinds of remarkable ways, in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. And we simply need yeah. to you know, be available and be willing to speak up when the opportunities present themselves. Yeah, and, and there... It sounds like people will even, uh, like you said, they 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 knew there was something different about you. They knew you were a Christian. Yeah. Uh, the 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 gentleman who came up and asked you to pray, and I think yes. you know we talk about that a lot, just because um, uh, one of my favorite passages in is is from Second Corinthians where we are a fragrance uh, of Christ. Yes, God, exactly. Wherever we go. And and uh, that has an impact, and it draws people to us, and and some people uh, are, are pushed away by that fragrance as well. Yes. I think we have, yeah. you know, that happens too. This is a I had uh, a, a really big. I, you know, go ahead. I was just going to say I had a really interesting exchange on Facebook several weeks ago that I think is illustrative of this. I had a conversation uh, two or three years ago with a guy who's now a friend of mine on Facebook, but we happened at that time, we weren't yet connected and uh, there, and we just happened to end up being roommates at a conference for business that we were both attending. And it turns out that he had at one time in his life, when he was a young man, been an evangelical Christian and had thrown it all away and become an atheist on the basis of the fact that some of the pastors that he had back when he was a kid couldn't answer the questions that he had. And he ultimately decided, Hmm. you know what, if these people can't answer my questions, obviously they're faking, and so I'm not going to believe in God anymore. Now, in the course of our conversation, as we sat up late that evening talking, I did not do, I think I can say honestly, I did not try to convince him of the error of his ways, but simply to speak about why 
I do believe in God, what I see as the compelling evidence for the reality of God's existence, the reliability of the Bible, and why Jesus matters, and what he came to earth to accomplish, which was to bring salvation to all of us who will believe and, um, you know, whom he has saved. He has chosen sovereignly to save. And what was fascinating to me now, a few weeks ago, this is a couple of years after our late night conversation at this conference, um, I had put in a a comment on something that he had started uh, in which he was asking for good thoughts about uh, his uh, child who was uh, struggling with some medical problems. And I posted, I'll pray for you, Steve. His name is Steve. And one of the other friends of his comes along and says, yeah, like praying is going to do a lot of good or whatever. You, you know, and make some sort of disparaging comment about obviously I was one of those deluded Christians. And what was really fascinating is my friend Steve, who even though he remains an atheist to this day, jumped into my defense and said, look, Bob's the real deal. He's not one of those charlatan Christians that you want to make fun of. And I thought wow. to myself, now how fascinating that God works even in this non-believer's heart to such an extent that he recognizes the reality of the faith and the truth that's there, even if he's not willing to accept it himself, to the extent that yeah. he would come into my defense in that context. So, <laughs> uh, that's pretty fabulous, cool stuff. Bob. And that, and that it is. And, and that's because, I think, because you are just being you. And uh, hmm. Christ was seen in you he could he could mm. he could see that and that fragrance yeah. that's fantastic um yeah. did you have you ever had uh well before i ask that question one prior this may be too general of a question to ask but uh i just want to see what you do with it i mean would you would you rather work on a secular project or a one that's a, a kind of Christian one. That's really a general, but um, sure. you know, I think you understand uh, honestly, what I'm getting at. Sure, yeah. Honestly, I, um, I love telling stories. It's why I use the phrase professional storyteller as sort of my descriptor on my website, <clears throat> in addition to the second nicest guy in voiceover thing. Because I do, and as you can already tell just in the brief conversation I've, we've had, I love telling stories about where I came mm-hmm. from and how I got where I am and et cetera, et cetera. I'd lo- I love telling stories. So for me, the real decision as to which thing I would most next like to work on is what is the most powerful and compelling and well-written story that I have available to me to read. And if that happens mm-hmm. to have been written by somebody who's a believer, wonderful. And there's lots and lots of really well-written, brilliantly crafted writing. We mentioned Calvin Miller and Becky Pippert and some other people earlier. You know, there's lots and lots of great stuff out there that's written by people who are believers. And there's also stuff that's very powerful and compelling that's written by people who aren't believers. And, you know, God is at work. God is sovereignly at work in the world all the time. And this essentially bogus distinction that you and I both grew up making uh, between that which is secular and that which is Christian 
is, you know, it's really a false premise. God is sovereignly in control of it all. And yes, there are certainly things that are not honoring to him. You know, pornography probably has nothing redeeming of value in it. You know, I mean, there's categories like that. But there's all, But you have to recognize that in almost everything else, if you really look at the story, you'll see the gospel or elements of the gospel reflected mm-hmm. in lots and lots of those stories. Uh, my wife and I went on a date this afternoon, and we saw uh, Hidden Figures, the, the, the new film about the African-American ladies mm. who worked for NASA in the 60s. And what I thought was extraordinary was the way in which the life of faith and the church attendance and the the way in which their lives as Christian believers was just woven into the story. Nobody had to make any hmm. special effort to bring Jesus into the story. He was right there. <laughs> and wow. Wow. I, I just, you know, that's that's what's really going on. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, what is he criticized for? Being with sinners. He loves hanging out with sinners. He loves mm-hmm. sinners because, after all, he came to save them. So we should not be surprised that he's hanging out with people that he's going to be criticized for hanging out with. Think about it, the Pharisee Simon's house, and the, the woman comes in, and she has no water with her to wash his feet, so she uses her tears. She doesn't have a towel with her, so she uses her hair. And then she anoints his feet with this extraordinarily expensive perfume. And Simon thinks if he was really a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is caressing him like this. And Jesus, of course, puts him in his place and helps him recognize that the person who needs the forgiveness and who is aware of how far they are from God because of their sin. She's the one who's receiving forgiveness. The one who thinks he doesn't need to be forgiven isn't getting forgiven. And when God wow, thank keep you, us Bob. from having that kind of arrogant mm-hmm. attitude about ours, uh, you know, where we stand, my yeah. goodness. I think to me the yeah. thing that unpacked really living a Christian life was when I really came home to, you know what? There is not a single good thing about me except Jesus. Everything else is corrupt and fallen, and no matter what sort of things that I do that might be seen by the world as being good, in front of God, it's filthy rags and piles of dung. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And well, thank you, We're you for all putting that. that uh, thank you for putting that together. I, I think what what <laughs> I heard you say there was that uh, that there there really aren't the, that the labels don't mean a whole lot. It's the story, mm-hmm. and and it's how uh-huh. well it's done. And um, yeah, uh, that I love that. I love that answer, and and I think that uh, all of us, anyone out there who is a creative, uh, needs to think about that. Focus on yes. on doing the absolute best you can do, and be be a Christian, and let let it influence who you are and what you do and what right. you say. Um, I wonder, really John, good. sometimes. I wonder sometimes, John, if Satan doesn't cackle over the so you know again air quotes Christian media, whether it's musicians mm-hmm. or writers yeah. or whatever. 
because it's so easy to be seduced into thinking that we're doing really excellent work because there's all these people around saying, wow, this is great, and da-da-da-da, when in fact the stories are not that compelling and the music's not that well done, right? It's, it's second rate, which is why it doesn't make... And, uh, well, and I also recognize there's an offense to the gospel. I'm not you know, ignorant of that. So there are times when what we do is not going to resonate well with the general public, because if what we're doing is something that is legitimately gospel-soaked, it's going to come with some offense with it. We can't help but do that, because people don't like to be reminded they're sinners. They they don't like to have that pointed out to them. Beautiful thing is that there's the gospel side of it. There's the but you know what? It doesn't matter how bad we are. There is salvation, and it's freely offered. Oh, what a beautiful story that is. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Grace. Grace and grace yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you ever had Have you ever had to uh, turn down a project because of ethical considerations, perhaps? I. Yes. And, you know, in a way, it's well, the short answer is yes. I was asked once, I was hired once to narrate a book that turned out to be a book on uh, written for men on how to seduce women in, in, and so that you can have sexual relations with them. Um, <clears throat> and I, uh, when I first auditioned for the job, that was not apparent from the text that was included in the audition. And um, so once I got the whole text and I saw where things were going, I I wrote back to the guy and I said, uh, thank you, but no thank you. And I'm assuming that he moved on to somebody else. So that's, but I think that's the only time that I've ever actually said no. Now, I, I have a pretty bright line over things that I won't cross, and they might not be the same place that other people who are Christians and who are narrators, you know, they might have other places. So, for example, I've narrated uh, some sports biographies, and as you might imagine with professional athletes, there's more than a little coarse language, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and it, including uh, uh, several F-bombs. And, you know, I, that, that, that's not part of my everyday language. It's not part of my occasional language, for that matter. But I I don't see that kind of language. I mean, yes, you know, there's injunctions in the New Testament about coarse speech and all of that kind of thing. So I understand that there are things that we're told to avoid or stay away from. But it doesn't have the same kind of powerful resonance as the original Ten Commandments, where what is the commandment, it's don't take the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, don't use God's name flippantly, you know, we uh, even within the church, the OMG and what the letters stand for is used all the time. I, I I hate to say this, John, but even inside the church, there are people using God's name in vain on a regular basis. And this is something that I, I that I don't do, and I um, I'm thankful that out of all the various things that have come to me from various publishers and, you know, whatever perspectives, uh, whatever stripe they are, mm-hmm. I'm thankful that I've not been asked to do a book that contains a bunch of legitimately, you know, using God's name in vain kind of stuff. Uh, because that I would, 
turn down. That's something that I would not be comfortable with. But I've read books, uh, nonfiction, medical, scientific books that have come from a, um, <coughs> pardon me, from a, an evolutionary standpoint. You know that don't have, you know, that are denying of God's existence. And stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I'm not troubled by that stuff because, uh, you know, I'm re- I'm representing or I'm giving voice to the author. It's not me. In other words, it's the author's mm-hmm. words that I'm reading. I do almost entirely mm-hmm. nonfiction. And so I'm just giving voice to the author, and therefore I'm saying whatever it is the author wishes to say and not me. Um, so, I, you know, reading something with which I philosophically or theologically disagree does not particularly trouble me at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the real world, and uh, yes, exactly. you know it's the world we live in, and and we can't expect people to adjust to us. Um, no, and yeah. we we need to adjust to them and and understand where they're coming from and what are they thinking and how how do they talk and yeah, mm-hmm. I I'm I'm with you. I think that's uh, that's that's so important, um, and otherwise. Otherwise, what, what we're doing is is phony. It doesn't it doesn't even have the authentic ring to it. You know, I mean, if you were going to write a book about about um, you know the hood, and you would have to have the language that they speak in the hood. Correct. And if that Correct. was a problem for you, then don't write that book. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. the way it and- is. Yeah. And John, when, back in the early 70s when I was at Trinity, I remember one of our professors wanting to help us. The vast majority of the students on the campus were uh, Caucasians, had been raised, most of us in the Midwest, some from California, but most of us in the Midwest of the United States. Uh, a lot of us came from rural or farm backgrounds and so forth. And this teacher who had had a number of interesting experiences over the course of his life, wanted to help us understand that there's biases built into the way tests are written and the way things are organized that make it more difficult for people with different sorts of backgrounds. So he put together a test in which if you grew up in the inner city, uh, the hood, as it were, although that expression didn't exist in the 70s. But uh, if, you, mm-hmm. if you grew up in the inner city, you would know the answers to these questions. But those of us who grew up like I did in rural Minnesota had no clue. And he, you know, he gave us this test, and of course the vast majority of us in the class bombed. But there were a couple of kids in the class who had in fact grown up in the inner city of Chicago, and they aced it. And then the discussion that followed after that quiz really helped to open our eyes to the reality that the language from where you're from can be distinctly unique and different, and there is a voice for those folks. And so therefore, understanding what that is and being able to express things in a context that makes sense to somebody whose world view and culture is so different from our own is critically important if we want to do a good job of communicating, uh, you know, the gospel to them. We need to be able to express it in a way that makes sense. Wow. And if, if we That's only great. ever speak out of our own experience, then 
you know, it limits necessarily, it limits who can even understand what we're telling them. Yeah. Wow. Well, Bob, this has been wonderful uh, and delightful you, at the same time. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you one last question just because, mm-hmm. um, you know, our average listener is is uh, not an, may, may not be an artist, uh, may not have some of the opportunities that you've had and experiences you've had. But what what can what can translate to all of us what what would you say sure. is the most some the most important thing you have learned that will help us uh live our lives uh more fully and more grace filled well first of all i haven't just been an artist i was a security guard when i was in college i worked in a factory for a while i worked in a lumber mill so I've had lots of jobs outside of the arts. And in every one of those contexts and all through my life, what God has made clear to me over and over and over again is that he is in charge of giving the message. And we simply need to be available and willing when he speaks through us or directs us. So whatever context it was, sitting behind the desk as a security guard and you know, somebody coming up to me and and uh, telling me how terrible their life is, and uh, I don't even know why these people are pouring their hearts out to me, and and yet I do because God was providing the door of opportunity, and that is true for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you live in a and work in a creative field or whether you go and you know spin a wrench in a in a, a car mechanic shop or whatever. Uh, or or scan the groceries at the store or bag them or whatever it is, mm-hmm. wherever you are, you can live a life that demonstrates the love of Christ to the people who are around you. And God will speak through you. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be willing to let him. Mm-hmm. Wow. Bob, that's wonderful. Thank you. And uh, I want to tell everybody... Uh, get familiar with this voice because uh, uh, <laughs> I was very privileged to have Bob read Dark Horse, my my novel, and he, and he is going to read some more of my books. So I'm so thankful for that, and uh, that'll be fun to see what happens of what you can turn these stories into. So I'm, I'm very privileged that you would uh, be uh, desirous of doing that, and I appreciate it, Bob, very much. Well, you're welcome. And thanks I love for being our guest. Dark Horse. Thanks for being our guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love I love listening to it. My, you know, my wife is really into audiobooks. And uh, cool. Uh, in fact, she, she plays them almost all the time while she's getting ready in the morning or getting ready to go to bed at night. And then a lot of times we fall asleep um, to the to the reading. And uh, mm-hmm. then we have, always have to keep going back because <laughs> hear the part we <laughs> yes, didn't exactly. hear when we fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. Right. But uh, that's a that's a is a, is there a growing market for for audiobooks? Oh yes, audiobooks audiobooks is one of the fastest growing segments of the publishing industry. In fact, there are book publishers who are being kept afloat by their audiobook branches these days because wow. the print book business is you know, slowly sinking into the mists and uh, the audiobook yeah. business is expanding by leaps and bounds. Yeah. Well, 
Well, Bob, I wish you well. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest on uh, on the Catch Blog Talk Radio. You're welcome, and God thank bless you. you, Bob. Thank you. God bless you. Good night. Well, folks, there you have it. Um, that was so much fun. And uh, look for look for our books. More of my books are going to come out in audio form, and uh, you'll be in, able to enjoy uh, Bob's voice from a lot of different perspectives. And uh, what a, what a delightful man he is, and uh, so glad so glad he represents our Lord out there. So, um, God bless you. Have a good week. Next week, we have Terry Glaspie, and we're kind of continuing on a theme of the arts. Terry Glaspie's new book, 75 Masterpieces That Every Christian Should Know. That's going to be a great one. Join us uh, next week. Don't miss that. Okay, God bless you, everybody. 